The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. This is episode 58, Oddball Planting Times with Jinx Farmer. Augustus Jenkins Farmer III is a Renaissance plantsman. Born into a family of artists, musicians, and farmers, he fell in love with the natural world early in his childhood. Later, he went on to pursue a formal education in plant and environmental sciences at Clemson University and botanical garden design at the University of Washington. For the last 20 years, Jinx has led teams responsible for establishing two of South Carolina's major botanical gardens. He has presented lectures for groups such as the North Carolina State Agricultural Faculty, the Smithsonian, Wave Hill, Master Gardener Clubs, and of course, his grandmother's Allendale Ladies' Afternoon Reading Club. His design for homes, museums, and businesses has received recognition and awards that have delighted hundreds of thousands of visitors with joyful, easy, exuberant, handcrafted gardens. An avid writer, Jinx has been publishing since 1990. His essays have been featured in magazines such as Rodell's Organic Gardening, Fine Gardening, Horticulture, Botanic Gardens Conservation International, and The Public Garden. His stories appear in Green Prints and Bear Essential Wildlife Journal of Australia. Jinx's books often interweave different facts, lessons, and moments in his life that he combines with knowledge he gained over the years. As the former director of Riverbank's Botanical Garden and founding horticulturalist of Moore Farms Garden, Jinx has a true talent and passion for inspiring people of all ages from all walks of life to go outside and get their hands dirty. This is episode 58, Oddball Planting Times with Jinx Farmer. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Jinx, do some plants have oddball times they need to be planted? Plants are from all over the world in all different kinds of climates and all different kinds of soils. One of the gardening rules that's always bugged me a little bit is that people are taught to plant perennials in the fall. Well, that's absolutely true for perennials from temperate environments. But think about all those plants from tropical environments. They don't have fall. They never had fall. They grow best when our soil is warm and warming. So that's one big exception to the rule and definitely sometimes feels like an oddball planting time when I say, hey, you got to plant your summer bulbs right now in the middle of May or even in the middle of July. We're here in the middle of May. What should we be thinking about planting now? My obsession, I guess, my passion is for crinum lilies and crinums are definitely subtropical bulbs. 
best time for planting them is right now. But same thing goes with all kinds of summer bulbs. And I like the odd bulbs. I love blood lilies, that genus is Scadoxis. Could plant blood lilies now, and they won't even show a leaf or do any growth until sometime in July. Voodoo lilies do great now. Of course, caladiums. Everybody knows about planting summer bulbs. We just sometimes forget about it. We're putting in gladiolus now and rain lilies. Those are some of my favorites, the little tiny white zephyranthes. You can still do dahlias. There are all those great new dahlias that really work in our heat and don't get quite so big as some of the old showy competition dahlias. Those are the kind of bulbs that we're planting. But then we're also still planting summer annuals. While we may feel like summer's been around a while and we've already done a lot of zinnias and marigolds and melampodium, those kind of fast-growing summer flowery annuals. On our farm and in the garden designs that we do, we make a plan for secession planting. I plant zinnias, for example, all the way into August. Zinnias planted in August are going to grow really fast, come to flower, and look awesome for the fall. We also plant some things late in an attempt to slow them down a little bit. For example, castor beans or, you know, that hyacinth bean, that big growing purple flowered vine? Right. I really love that thing, but it can be a monster. If you plant it now in May, it's going to be 25 feet long and smothering your car by the end of the summer. We like the flowers and the colors a lot. So for our secession planting for summer annuals with that plant, we'll put it in about the middle of July and we'll just direct sow seeds through our fields. And that way it doesn't have time to get quite as big and quite as massive. Are you harvesting the seed from that on your farm or are you digging and transplanting? No, like hyacinth beans and moonflower, we collect the seeds of those every year. Mm -hmm. We also do a lot of gourds. I have kind of a fascination with gourds. Yeah, we collect the seeds of those every year. Okay. We just store them in envelopes in a shed over the winter and do them again next year. Strictly for your enjoyment, not selling them. Oh, no, no, no. We're not selling them. We're doing them for our farm for lots of reasons. Like hyacinth bean is a nitrogen fixer. We like that it's providing nutrients to our crop. The green crop that becomes green manure. Fall, we'll just chop it and drop it in place. We also like it to be pretty because we have farm tours. Okay. How does that work? A lot of times when I'm talking about what I do, it's important to remember that we work on the farm, which is no-till and it's not very big. It's three quarters of an acre. I also do gardening and garden design. So I'm working with people who are in much smaller areas. And we duplicate a lot of these methods. Things that work on the farm can be amended easily to work in a garden. So the hyacinth bean example is great. We're primarily doing that because we want the fertility that comes from the beans. In a garden situation, we love the purple flowers and the purple pods. So we do that the same way. Is there a fall planting? Yeah, there's a definite fall planting. We are zone eight and we're way down low at an elevation of about 400 feet. So we're a little bit warmer than you all and therefore a little bit later. In November, we would start getting in bring flowering bulbs, but also we're thinking about two things. We're thinking about winter cover crops and bring flowers. For me, one of the best values, one of the most overlooked values in gardening and landscaping is sowing seeds directly. So in November, we're sowing the seeds of things like larkspur, toad flax, 
Nigella. This year we did a whole field of bachelor buttons. All of those things go in in November, but then they're just a little green carpet over the winter. Generally, as soon as the bulbs finish, like our lilies and stuff finished last week, and this week we have this sheet of purples, blues, burgundies, and whites of bachelor buttons. Some people call it cornflower, and then there's a real old name for it. Have you ever heard this name, Ragged Robin? No, I haven't heard that before. Yeah, the only people who mention that name to me are like in their 80s and really from the country. The other thing I mentioned earlier, though, Craig, is we are in November also sowing for winter cover crop. That's a little bit harder to do in gardens, but on our farm, we overseed with turnips and radish and arugula. One of the reasons we do that is that there was a research paper from Clemson a number of years ago that showed that growing plants in that family release gases into the soil that inhibit nematode populations. Hmm. I know. I mean, it's just awesome. It's like avatar magic. You know, we just there's so much that we don't know about what happens underground. So much that we're just discovering. Because we're a field nursery and we're shipping plants across the country, we have to have a very low nematode population. Our Department of Plant Industry checks it once a year and they give us a certification which allows us to ship into all states. We do that every year. So in the radish and arugula, and then, of course, we have all that food for the winter. Yeah, double purpose there. All right, what about moving on into the next season? Yeah, we don't do a whole lot in the winter. We kind of let our fields go dormant. We continue to plant bulbs in landscapes right through February. If we can, a little seed in of something like toad flax, you can do that in the winter. Mm -hmm. We continue planting parsley. Parsley is one of those crazy things. I remember being outside one morning in, I don't know, January or so when I was working at the botanical garden and we had a bunch of volunteers coming and they were hardy. You know, to me, if you got some people coming in on a cold morning, you better have something good for them to do took out flats and flats of parsley and started planting them. And I realized that as we were pulling them out, the six packs, it was like little black ice cubes with a little sprig of parsley poking out the top. Those plants transplanted just beautifully, no problem. And I love parsley for its texture, but also for the fact that later on in late May, it's awesome for pollinators. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's um, it's kind of a hard concept and a hard thing, I think, for especially for new gardeners to get. Gardening is all about looking into the future and imagining what you want to see, what you want to eat, and when you want it, and then backing everything up to make it happen, especially if you're doing things from seed. In the production world, it's called scheduling your plants. You really have to schedule your garden, too. Yeah, it's all the processes that go before that and, and then, of course, after it. Do you find that people not from Zone 8 coming in that are having to adjust their planting style? Yeah, where we are, we're near Aiken, South Carolina. We have a lot of people moving mm-hmm. in, especially from the Midwest and the Northeast. And even now, we have a lot of people moving from Florida. They've moved down to Florida to get to the warmth, but... Now they're moving back up to somewhere that has a little bit more diversity in the climate. I find that they have a hard time understanding the cycles that you and I are talking about, these cycles that continue all year. Because a lot of people from the Northeast had almost no gardening activity in the late fall and winter. 
And some of the things that we've talked about so far, like seeding in larkspur and poppies, those are things that they often do in the spring, and then they would have those as summer plants. But in our climate, that's as we've said, completely reversed. We do it in the fall and have them as spring plants. Yeah, helping people understand the cycles to a specific climate and also to a specific soil. Those two things are really related. That's something that I really ask people to look into and to think about and read local books, like local gardening books, which are kind of hard to find. But in used bookstores, you can often find the notes from some old garden club to really begin to understand those cycles. The other thing I do is tell people to go to the national weather databases. There are maps online where you can find active soil reading. I do that a lot. I want to know what my soil temperature is right now because that is important to your gardening. You'll see on seed packs, it'll say, sow these seeds when the soil temperature is 78. Well, if you have a 78 soil temperature, you have to wait pretty late. Your daytime temperature may be 80, but your soil temperature may not have followed yet. Soil temperature is very important to the kind of cycling and the timing that we've been talking about. How about moisture in the soil? Too wet or too dry? Is that a factor? Definitely too dry. When you talk about seeding in, doesn't matter what time of year, you've always best to do it on a rainy day. I get out in the fall on a misty fall day with chest seeders where I'm spreading the seed. I try to schedule those things, or I guess the the truth is I try not to schedule too much. I try to have everything I need on hand so that when I see a couple days ahead that we're going to have a couple of cloudy or misty days, I can get those seeds in on those days. Why is that important? Yeah, it's so important to have that for germination. And even the irrigation can do a lot, but it can't do what a rainy day or more importantly, a rainy three days can do as far as getting all kind of little seedlings up and established. Why do you think rainwater makes a difference over irrigated water? Well, they say rain has a little bit of nitrogen in it. That's one reason, but also it's consistent. I think that's important to what I'm talking about, the kind of germination that we need for big mass of larkspur where the irrigation might come on in the morning, but then on a fall day, on an October day in South Carolina, the soil temperature might get up to 92 because the sun will just bake it. And if that happens, you have all these tiny little seedlings that are just going to fry. If you can do those kind of seed ends on consistently rainy days, it helps to get the little things up and get their radicals in the ground so that they're strong and able to tolerate a hot afternoon. You're using a no-till method and you're broadcasting those seeds on the surface of the ground. That's right. Now we will do, depending on the seed, we'll do a hard rate sometimes to just get to little places for those seeds to perch. How about seeding on your lawn? I know there's a lot of people that have gone to this no-mow May. Maybe that adjusts for the more southern states like clover and the timing for that. What is your thoughts? I want my lawn to do what my grandmother's lawn did. Kids could roll around and play sports. It was a place that the dogs could poop and it didn't require 
tons of energy inputs in the form of water and fertilizer and pesticides. Seeding clover into your grass, I think, is a great idea if you're good with that kind of a look. But a lot of the information that I see on social media right now is about clover lawns for the summer, and that's coming from the north. So I think it ties to our conversation, the timing of things. Clover in the Deep South is one of those things that we generally sow in the fall, and it germinates slowly over the winter, and then it looks great in early spring and all the way into probably July when we start getting really terrible. I wouldn't sow clover right now. You might get a little bit to come up. In the South, it's generally a bit of a waste of time, but I'd go on and plan that kind of thing for next fall. The crimson clover, which is so beautiful on our, a lot of our roadways, is an awesome plant for that place. But if you're doing clover in a lawn, you need to go with white clover. There's even one called micro clover. Those work a lot better in a lawn mixed in. They just fit in better. The scale of them is smaller and they can tolerate a couple of mowings through the season. I'm still adjusting to this no most thing. I, I do see a lot of little flowers that I don't know the names of. It's been very enjoyable. I know it does a lot of good for the insects. It's a big pollinator attractor. And we have bees on the farm, so we like to do anything we can to produce our honey. It's also good for the soil, of course. Craig, I don't even know how old you are, but when I started out, people were still seeding in lawns. This whole thing of rolling out an instant sod lawn was pretty rare. Oh, yeah. When you bought grass seed, it often had clover mixed in it because clover produces a little bit of nitrogen. I call that a nurse plant. It was mixed in to help those little grass seedlings come along stronger. And it's a little crazy over the years, over the decades, we've suddenly got to this place where some people consider clover a weed and want to buy chemicals to spray it out and get rid of the clover. When really it's doing some important things for your soil and for creating a kind of living environment, a whole system. And I think that's what a garden is. It's a system that's constantly changing. It's providing benefits in ways that we may not even know and may never understand. It's providing a sort of a dynamic beauty. I think we're used to constantly pursuing that perfect lawn, and that's caused a lot of problems in that we've gotten rid of the plants that benefits in that lawn. A lot of those ideals are kind of new. Like, I never grew up with perfect lawns. We have centipede. That was our most common lawn. Although I remember a carpet grass lawn, and that was a great lawn, but I don't think I've seen a carpet grass lawn in forever. Yeah, I've always heard of carpet grass, but I've never seen it. I've, I've seen centipede, uh, zorgia, and bermuda, and fescue. It used to be where you get a new house, and the landscape was just a 50-pound bag of fescue on the yard with tweet straw and eight plants. That was your typical track home type landscape. For you up there in the highlands, <laughs> we can't grow fescue. We would have Bermuda. For us, Bermuda is the easiest. Uh -huh. I just saw on social media the other day that not too far from you, the Longleaf Botanical Garden in Anniston. Yes. Yeah, that's not that far. They just seeded in a carpet grass lawn. Huh. I want yeah, to see yeah. it. And I think it's done with the idea that it's going to have clover and other things mixed in. So it's going to be a really good looking functional lawn, but it's not going to require the energy input of these perfect golf course lawns. Yeah, I like that. 
The other thing is we have what we call the bulb lawn, mm-hmm. and I have a whole chapter about this lawn in one of my books. It's a lawn that I grew up with and has been developing over, I don't know, since the 50s, where people have planted a few little bulbs here and a few little bulbs there just out in the grass, or somebody made a new flower bed, and then that somebody went away, and the flower bed got mowed over. But over the years, this lawn has developed into somewhere where bulbs have naturalized. And we have about six weeks of spectacular, like low meadow in this bulb lawn in the springtime. And it all happens around the time the spireas are just starting and the camellias are just ending. From Christmas on, we don't mow this area at all. So it gets a little woolly, gets up six inches high, and it's not perfectly even by any means. But on some day in early March, it covers itself with a blanket of white flowers. And then it just proceeds through the season until around the second week in May, we cut the whole thing and rake up the leaves because it's almost like a hay field by that point. We just mow it for the summer. One of the keys to the growth of all of those bulbs in the bulb lawn is that it's not irrigated through the summer. That's key because a lot of our little bulbs, the things that we really love, like jonquils, they're from Mediterranean climates that stay really dry in the summer, and they want to bake in the summer. If they were irrigated all summer, they would just rot and wither away. Letting those bulbs recharge, too, before you cut them. Yeah, definitely. We don't fertilize that lawn. We don't irrigate it. I do replenish it now. Now that I'm taking more care of it, I add a few things like little species tulip, Plusiana tulips that get about five inches high, Mm -hmm. and those will seed themselves in. I've also added more and more red spider lilies, so we get a fall display too. That's a good combo planting, right? The daffodils and the spider lilies? Yeah, exactly. That works not just in a lawn. I mean, you could do that at the base of a mailbox, you know, just a couple of little plants like that. I love when you're doing a combination in time. So you extend the season and the interest in one bed using plants that like the same cultural conditions. That's something I've wanted to do. I just haven't got the spider lilies yet to do it. And you can grow the naked ladies, the big pink ones. Those are awesome, but uh, we struggle with those. They don't, they don't really like our heat. They're awesome up around Atlanta and into higher elevations and especially in heavy clay soils. Well, that'll be on my wish list. Craig, you know, with that whole idea of growing two different bulbs together for different seasons of interest, Mm -hmm. I'm going to turn this conversation a little bit to my personal passion, which are crinum lilies. One of the complaints, I guess, or some of the objections, I guess, when I talk to people who have modern homes and smaller yards is that crinum lilies take up too much space. There are a lot of things to address with that because we do have some tiny crinum lilies. Sequencing plants and planting together things that grow well together, it's a great idea in any landscape. For example, we use southern snowflake, Lacogum. That's one of my favorite spring flowering bulbs. So I'll plant that together right in a hole with a crinum mm-hmm. so that we get that spring foliage and spring flowers. And then about the time it's starting to look rough, going dormant in the summer, the crinum's starting to grow. So you're getting some leaves that cover up the other plant and then you get summer flowers. This year we're doing ornamental tobacco. We're using one called Nicosiana mutabilis. The little flowers open up white, and the next day they turn mauve, mauvey pink. 
It's a big growing plant, about chest high on me with thousands of flowers. Nicosianas are very cold tolerant, so we planted our Nicosiana from seed over the winter. About April 1st, we put them out and we planted them right in with all of our crinums. They're already starting to flower. We got lots of white flowers and a few little pink ones, and the crinums are already starting to grow up, but we're adding a lot of season of interest to that crinum by interplanting the two. Yeah, I like that. Your crinums are coming May or when? With crinums, they're, you know, they're crinums from all over the world. Okay. They flower all the way through from April until November for us. So when you're selecting a crinum, it's important to select the one that fits. We have a lot of snowbirds. They, they're part-timers here, and they go back up to the mountains in the northeast for the summer. So I have to make sure when they're coming to buy a crinum that I'm getting something that's going to flower for them in April or May, because they don't want those things that flower in the middle of July and August. The earliest one I have is probably one of the most fascinating to me. It's a species. It's called Crinum bulbispermum. That's a scientific name. Common name is orange river lily, or in South Carolina, it's called cemetery lily. And that one starts growing for us in February, but it puts on all its flowers in March, April, and by about mid-May, it's done. Some of the cool things about it, it has a very specific moth pollination mutualism that I think is really cool. It releases a scent that is particularly attractive to big hawk moths. And I love that. In the evening, you can literally almost see those flowers moving and releasing their fragrance. And right about dusk, you're going to get hit by a hawk moth if you're out there. That one's a great landscape plant. Also one that people see around in old homes and cemeteries. It's the only one with a gray leaf, like silvery gray. One of the management tools that I recommend is that you let it flower, collect the seeds if you want to grow it from seed. Then about July, you cut it all the way down to the ground. Let the leaves come back out all summer. It'll be really pretty by fall when the purple asters and all those fall colors are coming in, the purples and blues and golds. And that silvery gray leaf is really pretty with all those colors. Oh, I can imagine that. That does sound beautiful. Let's take a step back for people who haven't discovered crinum lilies, because I was in the garden business for a number of years, but I never remember being exposed to crinum lilies. Could you describe what they are and why we're just starting to see these more available? If you imagine that amaryllis that you get at Christmas, the one that comes as a bare bulb and you put in a little pot and it comes up and has a big salmon or bright red flower. Mm -hmm. Crinum is that, but on steroids. They're bigger, generally, bolder. Mm. The leaves reach out further than those amaryllis. They're also more fragrant than those amaryllis. That's the best way I know to tell people how to picture them. The reason that you haven't seen them or they weren't common in the landscape is twofold. First, they were one of those plants that were very common in really, really old Southern gardens. As Southerners started leaving the farms and going to the suburbs and cities and moving out, you want to leave a lot of those things that remind you of poverty, right? You can imagine the Beverly Hillbillies going on to something better. They're not taking their chickens with them and they're not taking their crinums with them. They fell out of favor. The other reason that they really have never found a good place in the industry is that they are 
big bulbs. The size bulbs that we dig and ship on our farm are generally about the size of an apple or a grapefruit, and they have about a 16-inch neck. Imagine trying to grow that in a one-gallon pot. The bulb itself takes up all the pot room. It doesn't even have room for any roots. So they've not been really good in that plastic pot production scheduling. That's made them difficult. There are a number of nurseries that have tried. I still think the best crinums are the ones that come bare root. Even if you do find one in a plastic pot, I recommend people cut the roots off and kind of let it start over. Those are the reasons they hadn't been in the trade much. And then there's an aesthetic issue. They're big. People don't really know about them, so they don't know how to use them. I get questions all the time along those lines. Hey, I don't know where to put this. And I'll see crinum planting mistakes, I guess, a lot. For example, around the D.C. area, we've been promoting crinums in that area for a long time. I'll go up there and see crinum white queen. That's one that everybody loves. But white queen has these weird spreading leaves. So if you plant that within four feet of the walkway, it's going to send these leaves snaking out over the walkway. You got a trip hazard and you have to cut the leaves off and they're ugly when you cut the leaves off. Understanding their growth habit is important and it just hadn't been something that's been really taught. I don't think I heard the word crinum the whole six years I was in horticulture school. I don't think I heard it until about two years ago, and I've been in the industry for 40 years. (laughs) I remember the first ones I ever saw were on a landscape project, and the lady had them planted around probably 10, 15 different trees. She wanted us to move them. And I thought, well, okay, that's not going to be a big deal. Go out there, and we start trying to dig these things. It was a huge deal. They were really hard to get out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've dug a clump of bulbs that weighs 400 pounds. Good grief. Yeah, these weren't that big, but I can see where they would get that way. She said, well, take some if you want them. And I took some and I had those around for several years. And then I don't know why they went away, but they did. We got some about five or six years ago and I never got around to planting them. Just stick them over there and those things bloom every year. They're tough as nails. You can leave one laying on top of the ground unplanted and it'll send roots down into the ground. That bulb will lay there sideways the whole time. It can't straighten itself up, but it'll root in and the leaves will start growing out the other end and they'll flower out the other end. I heard that you could use them on rooftops. How does that work? What we've been talking about are the big crinums generally. Okay. I'll tell you a little story to give you an idea of the diversity in crinums around the world. Okay. I used to love to do backpack traveling and camping, and I was in Madagascar in a black river, walking in this river about chest deep, and there were little white flowers floating on the surface of the river. Went under and got down to the bottom and pulled out the crinum bulbs. This was a plant that was growing almost like a water lily. Then there are also plants that grow, just like you said, under trees in the dry roots and in baking desert. An Indian one that I grow gets about three inches tall, and it flowers about 10 o'clock at night, and then it closes up about 6 o'clock in the morning. There are crinums in Asia that are 15 feet tall. They're used for hedges and privacy screens. For rooftop gardening, you have to use the little ones, obviously. 
because you often have a low soil profile. So one that I've used a lot is one called Bradley. Bradley comes from Australian deserts, but it loves our climate. It grows right almost at the surface of the soil. It has this massive living root system. On a rooftop garden, what you really want from your plants is the ability to suck up a lot of water when there's a rainstorm or flood to hold that water almost like a sponge and to either use it or to slowly release it. Crinums, because they have this big root system beyond the bulb, have the ability to do that. Would you interplant it with sedums and things like that on your rooftop, or is it just going to be a solid crinum roof? No, the rooftops that I've done, I have used crinum bradley mixed in with lots of grasses. Grasses also have those big root systems that can hold lots of water. You're trying to create a sponge. Rooftops in the deep south tend to be a little bit different than the sedum and kind of xeric looks that you see on some. There's an awesome example of a rooftop garden that's easily viewable at the Potts Market in downtown Atlanta. That's a good example of what a southern rooftop garden can be like. It looks almost more like a knee-high meadow. The crinums mix right in. In fact, that's a lot of times crinums are from those kind of habitats in the wild. We have a native crinum that's from exactly that habitat. It's crinum americanum. It grows along our riverbanks. It'll grow on a little stump out in a slow-moving creek. In the Gulf Coast, you see it lots of times. You'll see a whole bank of it mixed in with cattails, sometimes pitcher plants. From our habitat, which is generally a wet summer, but then we'll go into August. And if we have a really dry August, all of those plants are surviving the August based on how much water they're holding on to often. And that's kind of what they do on a rooftop planting. Yeah, I've seen those before. I didn't realize those were crinums. I didn't, I didn't have a clue what they were. We use a lot of crinums too in pots. I have a, a garden in Charleston that I do. The house has four outside terraces. The crinums are mixed in for seasonal color. That planting's been there 15 years. It does have a little drip irrigation. The crinums are doing great. And then in certain places, the homeowners wanted some veggies. So we have now mixed some veggies over the top of the crinums. Very interesting plant. I'm glad you're bringing it back in popularity in your book. The Crinum Unearthing the History and Cultivation of the World's Largest Bub. Why did you write that book? You know, Craig, I didn't want to write that book. (laughs) (laughs) For years, people have said, you need to write a book on crinums. And when I would go to publishers, they're like, you don't need to write a book on crinums because there's not enough of a market for it. I've been working with Amazon to do the self-publishing of this book. It worked out really well because I went into it knowing that this is an odd book about an obscure bulb. Not a lot of people are going to be out there searching for a book titled or about this. I worked really hard to tell stories about the bulb, to tell history of the bulb. You know, there's a story even of how how these bulbs are connected to Downton Abbey. I worked really hard to do that, but to also make it a good gardening guide for people, just just like you're asking, like if I hadn't heard of this plant and I want one, how do I use it and how do I become successful with it? I wrote it to address that. I wrote it to get a lot of stuff that's been rattling around in my head for 20 years out. It's been really cool. Happened to be published right when the Northeast was going into a bunch of snowstorms back in January. 
I think that was the primary driver of this. There were a bunch of people that stuck in their house. We were number one in the horticulture section of Amazon for a couple of weeks. Now I get these emails that tell me when somebody's bought it. I set it up for them to tell me when somebody buys it in other countries. So we know now it's been sold in Japan and Brazil, Australia, England, Mexico, One guy bought it in Spain and he emailed me and said, I'm coming that way. He's a professional botanist. We're going to spend a couple of days together going to look at crinums out in the wild. And a really awesome connector. This isn't a book that's ever going to sell 10,000 copies. It's really pretty. It was fun to do. I was reading the excerpts on Amazon and it's like, oh man, I want to get this book. It's very enticing there. When I first heard of the book, it's like, I don't know that that's something really interesting. But then when I started reading that excerpt, it's like, yeah, I got to get that. <laughs> I'm not embarrassed to say I'm a little bit of a geek and a little bit of a crinum nut. So I tried to share a little bit of that. There's a whole community of people who are fascinated by this big bulb. I think part of the interesting history is that it used to be a man's world in the crinum world. When I was young, my crinum mentors were all men. I don't know exactly why that was, except probably had more free time to poke around and garden. That's changed a lot. So we have farm events now. We have farm tours and we do even farm happy hours. That's changed a lot. It's not all women, but it's probably 60% women. And we work really hard to keep that diverse. We also work really hard to keep it age diverse on our evening tours now. Recently, we've had lots of teenagers, which is awesome for me. Learned so much from my mentors and they totally directed my life that I want to at least put things out there. So if there's a young person out there looking, I can help them get into horticulture. Tell us about the farm. Well, I'll tell you the first thing is that I ran away from it. Like a lot of kids that grew up in the 70s in the deep south, we were looking at magazines and TV and we knew that there was a cool world out there and it wasn't on this little dirt road with cows and chickens. And I ended up getting as far as I could. I went to school in Zambia and I went to school in Seattle, finally came back to the South and had a career in public gardening, which is what I studied to do and built botanical gardens. But the farm was always my home, where my heart was. And where my parents were, not, I didn't live there, but when my dad got sick, I realized I needed something to do there, to be there, but not be sitting beside him constantly. So we started growing crinums because I had this lifelong obsession with them and they weren't readily available. Just kind of exploded. I don't know, exploded. It was more like a real slow burn. My goal at the time while I was still working full-time, was to grow some things that I could sell wholesale to botanical gardens and specialty nurseries. And then I met my partner, and he had retail experience. And he said, let's set this up as a web nursery. That was back when the web was really young. We were featured on the AOL homepage, if that tells you how old things were. So we have three-quarters of an acre in production. And basically, you can picture it as like a daylily farm or even a a strawberry farm. We have 75-foot-long rows. In every row are different varieties of crinum. They're all keyed to databases so we can tell what they are. We have some rows where we mix in other things like spider lilies, hymenocallus. We do blood lilies, and we do a couple of rare kind of antique daylilies. Everything is in a row, and we dig 
We have a cleaning process that we work with the Department of Plant Industry on. We ship dry bulbs. So these things are like 18 inches long and a couple of pounds a piece, depending on the crinum. Just take them to our local post office and mail them out. Then we have the tours that I've mentioned earlier. There's a barn that we renovated a couple years ago with our interns. Totally tore the barn down, rebuilt it, and made it function as an office and a little place where interns can stay when they're there for a temporary gig. It has my design office, so when I'm doing garden design, I have a place to pull out all the papers and leave the straight edges. I still do my design by hand. So that's the farm. My mom still lives there. Uh, It's a really old farmhouse way out in the country. We still heat with wood, and we have a little veggie garden where we grow all of our own veggies. We're near Augusta, Georgia, but we're in South Carolina in a little town called Beach Island. book that you wrote, Funky Little Flower Farm, that's about your farm? That book is about our farm, but it's also a gardening guide by month. And every month, there are two stories. There's a work story, what we're doing on the farm. For example, we are sowing in larkspur and clover and toad flax in October. It is paired with a plant of the month. So in October, the plant of the month is perennial garden moms. And I try to infuse a lot of humor. I try to tell stories about being on the farm and kind of funny things that happen. Like with moms every year, my mom goes to the discount rack at some grocery store and comes home with all these old florist moms that are wrapped up in shiny foil paper and they look terrible and they're probably not going to make it. But I plant those things because, you know, that's what you do. I talk about why those don't make it, but then I go into all of the old pass-along mums that do make it, the ones that are just tough as nails, the ones that are really pretty and romantic and a little bit flop. In other months, like in January, it's a little bit more about life on the farm. Like, what does a gardener do when it's too cold and gray to garden? We do a lot of barn repair. So there's a story of the interns and Tom and I tearing down this barn and jacking up the roof and then rebuilding under it in a way that makes it look like the old barn that was there. That book has had really great reception. I love that because it's a lot of personal memories. It's a very personal book because the crew on the farm, the characters that reoccur through the book, they're our interns and they're my sister and my mom. I've been really proud of that one. That one has had good legs, I think, because people just like stories. And it's also the way that it's laid out. You could pick it up and read a couple pages and put it down. It's more like a a bunch of stories put together with gardening pictures. It's not a book that you have to read all the way through. How about Deep-Rooted Wisdom, Stories and Lessons from the Generations of Gardeners, that book? So Deep-Rooted Wisdom was the first book that I wrote. It was when I made that transition. I went from the world of public horticulture to working for myself and developing the farm. And I did that with Timber Press. They're based out in the West Coast. That was really fun to do. It's much more of a textbook. So some of the things that I was talking about earlier, like fungal relations in the soil and nematode relations with certain plants, those are things that I know and I feel and I get a lot of general kind of reading and Google education on. Mm -hmm. 
but I didn't really know the new science to back them up. So in Deep Rooted Wisdom, I looked into the new science and combined with those stories of how we do things, I added interviews of people who knew a lot more about the science than I do. So in each chapter of that, there's a story about an old gardener, often one of my mentors, but it's paired with the new understanding of science. For example, when I was young, one of my mentors would always tell me, if you're going to plant a dogwood tree, then you have to go out into the woods, rake up some duff and leaves from under an old dogwood and bring it and put it around that new dogwood. Well, I thought that was like black magic, right? Like, yeah, he's just some crazy old guy. They don't tell us that in college. But now we totally understand what he was doing was inoculating that new dogwood tree, the the one that's been in a nursery, getting drip steroids and constant irrigation, constant chemical fertilizer. I was just inoculating that with the mycorrhizal that dogwoods really need to thrive. Deep Rooted was my very first book. It's coming on eight years old, and I am working on a new book now, but I have a full-time job and a full-time farm to run, so when I get a couple of days to sit down and write, I'm really grateful for those days. You want to give us a hint on what that book's all going to be about? Oh, it's the same old thing. It's stories about oddball gardeners who really love plants <laughs> and get obsessed with plants. Could you tell us one of your favorite horticultural history stories? I mentioned earlier, Craig, about the Downton Abbey connection to crinums. So I've been growing forever. One of the pass-along plants of southern gardenings, it's a crinum called digweedii. The scientific name is crinum x digweedii. I couldn't find the information about digweed anywhere. And I have a lot of good history books about crinums and the people who are involved in crinums. I was doing some online research. I think I was in Google Scholar and I found this name that came up, digweed, but it came up in some genealogy letters from the place where Downton Abbey is filmed. It's called Highclere Castle. So I looked into those. Come to find out, Digweed was the head gardener at Highclere Castle. That was his name, (laughs) Mr. Digweed, right? Uh, What a great name. It's like a Charles Dickens novel. (laughs) And not only uh, Digweed, but a couple of generations of his sons did it. Well, he was mentioned in this book as the gardener. And then in that, they mentioned that he was in contact with another guy who was considered kind of the father of the amaryllis classification. And I found some of his books and realized that digweed had been given credit for growing in the greenhouse, one of the first hybrids between American and African crinums. So I wrote a little essay on it, and I called it the Crinum of Downton Abbey. A couple months later, I got an email from a man named Digweed, and he said, Hey, uh, not only am I a descendant of who you're talking about, but my brother is actually still a professional gardener in England, and he sent me the link to this guy's garden design business in England. Oh, wow. I love those kind of connections, you know? Yeah. Just random that it's connected to the the current movies and PBS TV shows, but it gives me an idea of maybe a little bit of how Digweed lived. I love the fact that he was doing something that had never been done before. And even though he was basically lost to general horticultural history, his name is still there. Yeah, you've resurrected him. Well, not physically, but you, you brought him back to our... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, and his, and his grandsons never forgot him. 
You know, that brings up the resurrection thing. In our part of the Deep South, we can't really grow lilies. They don't persist really well. And of course, the lilies in Christianity are associated with rebirth, springtime, and you often see them on cemeteries. I was on this house tour of this plantation called Red Cliff Plantation, and I noticed in a memorial painting what should have been a lily, because it would have been symbolizing the hope, the rebirth of this young woman who had died, was actually a crying oh. I think maybe that could be how these plants in the Deep South got their name, Cemetery Lily, is that they were things that we could plant and we could grow that look like lilies and take the place of lilies in the kind of symbolism, but like our climate. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden? I wish that the environment, and I mean the, the water that we see, the plants that we see, the animals that we see, as well as the things that we don't see, the things underground, the things that we don't understand, the relationships that we don't understand, could somehow take a much more important place in the design process. I know that's sort of philosophical. I think every designer and every landscaper and every client should be more compelled to consider those things. To make those things a priority sometimes means that we have to change our aesthetic. Maybe we can't have that perfect lawn anymore. It takes the clients changing in order for the professionals to change. Because we, you and I as professionals, can preach all day about caring for the environment. But if the clients are still demanding clouds of mosquito spray through their yard, then somebody's going to fill that niche. That's where I wish garden designers, installers, and clients could start prioritizing. What's your earliest garden memory? I can't say that I have much of a time that I didn't have one because of how I grew up growing all of our own food. I was always barefoot and dirty. To tie it to crinums a little bit, I got my first crinum. I found it when I was uh, 10 years old or so back in the early 70s. And I remember being totally fascinated by that kind of beautiful ephemeral thing that would come up in the springtime. But understanding that somewhere below ground, there was this massive structure, this like organism, this this mother that I didn't understand, that I couldn't see and couldn't get to. That kind of intrigue in nature is something that I really hope I can share with other people. Why did you decide to pursue the horticulture profession? I have to tell you, I grew up in a family where we didn't know any landscapers and we didn't go to botanical gardens. And I had no idea as a child that you could make a living doing this. I was at Clemson majoring in something I wasn't thriving in. And a guy on my hall, a distant cousin, took me aside and he said, hey, you know, you're a real creative guy. I can see it because you have a mohawk. (laughs) And I was like, I think you should be in something design related, but outside. And he said, I'm in horticulture. Why don't you come and talk to us? It was that random connection. It was the fact that I was in a place where there were people who were willing to say, yeah, you can do this. And here's something you never thought about, but it might be a good fit. How'd you become a garden communicator? Like a writer? Yeah. I guess I started writing when I started feeling like I was a little bit of an outsider in the horticulture business because I was growing plants like crinum, things that weren't in the trade. I got this position with developing a new botanical garden. So it was my job to explain the beauty and the magic and to encourage people to do this at home. 
personally, I wanted to share things that I was discovering. And then professionally, it was my job to share and to bring people in as volunteers and as visitors. Do you have a funny plant or garden story? Um, Craig, I'm terrible at funny stories. I write them. You, you need to read them. <laughs> I don't know. I can tell you not too long ago, we have garden tours and, you know, we have all kinds of animals on the farm. And one of the most important things I have is a dog that loves to hunt, not like shooting, but to hunt rodents. So we were standing around with a bunch of ladies from town and Sweetie Pie came up just as proud as she could be with half a rabbit hanging out her mouth. <laughs> but you know, it's part of the cycle. I got to be able to explain yeah. that to people. We don't use pest control, so we have a lot of rodents. We're happy to see the dogs and the cats doing a little bit of that control for us. Who in your career has been your biggest influencer? Without a doubt, J.C. Ralston, who was at NC State and was an internationally known horticulturalist. He was the man who, back in the 80s, was standing up and saying, we have 10 really great plants in landscaping, and we have 10 really great plants that nobody ever looks at. It was a little bit of an outsider, too, and I interviewed with him for grad school. He kind of put his arm around me, and he said, you know, I don't think you should come here. As much as I like you, as much as we are like-minded in what the kind of research we would do, he said, you need to get out. He said, you need to be where there are people doing really creative stuff and you need to expand your mind in ways you hadn't figured out yet. So he basically paved the way for me to go to the graduate school out in Seattle. And that just opened up a whole world of horticulture for me. How so? Gosh, compared to what was happening here, it was basically landscaping. And at the state level, South Carolina was really poor at the time. So there weren't botanical gardens. There were a few. and I had worked in all of those few. I got out there and I got involved in the Asian community and I learned about all these Asian vegetables. I saw how arts and craftsmanship could be integrated into gardens where suddenly a trellis wasn't something that you built with two by fours. It was something that craftsmen built that was a beautiful piece of art on its own. Those are just a couple of the ways because that was a place where really there were people coming in from all over the world. In my job at graduate school, I was meeting horticulturalists from all over the world and getting to learn new plants and to learn that there were other places that were equally as mind-blowing all around the world. What is your most valuable garden mistake? I think I'd have to say a little sort of a philosophical mistake. The kind of mistakes that I make with planting, maybe choosing the wrong plant, things that don't thrive, those are things that you've learn from readily. I like making those mistakes, but I think for a while I promoted and shared the idea that gardens were kind of prestige and we needed things like prestige lawns, that we needed things that were perfect, maybe like two magazine perfect. That was a mistake that I wish I could go back and change, but I'm trying to change it now by encouraging people to garden more environmentally friendly. What have you recently learned that you didn't know about horticulture? I recently spent three days with a department head from Cornell. This guy came down and stayed on the farm for three days. He heard about our collection of crinums in flower, and he brought with him his fragrance collecting tools. His name's Dr. Robert Gregoso. He's gone around the world collecting the fragrances of flowers. I can't go into exactly how he does it because it's pretty complex, but he basically encapsulates a fragrance from a flower in a tiny glass tube. 
that he then takes back to Cornell and does chromatography on. So he can send me basically the recipe for the fragrance of a flower. And his interest in it is in how things benefit mutually. So for example, the fragrance of the flower that he came to work with us on, the crinum bulbospermum, has a very high nitrogen scent. It's a real acrid fragrance mixed into the perfume. And he thinks that there may be chemicals in that that moths particularly need for their egg-laying cycles. That fragrance is drawing a particular moth. I just learned this two weeks ago. It was like spending three days in grad school with this guy. I think the more I can learn about those kind of mutualisms, the more I'm fascinated and the more it helps other people make connections to their life and maybe therefore want to grow some of these plants. That's mind-blowing. <laughs> <laughs> I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have a total conundrum where I go around telling people, use curvy lines and don't have so much grass. Now my garden is the field that I've been telling you about. So I have a garden of 75 straight lines, 150 feet long, and I have grass walkways in between them where I have to have that to drive the truck to collect plants. What is your favorite plant in the garden besides crinum lilies? That, you know, that's such a hard question. It depends on, it's every day, it's a different plant. Right now, I would say it is sweet lemon. It's a citrus that we grow outside. You squeeze, you drink the juice, and it tastes just like lemonade. Do you have any final thoughts to leave us with? You know what, Craig, I'll tell you the thing that I'm most proud of in my career, because I've spent 25 years in the public garden world. When I started out, my advisor told me that in order to do what I wanted to do, I would have to leave South Carolina. And that was true at the time. I've been so lucky to ride this giant wave of interest, this horticultural renaissance that's happened here with South Carolina natives, and it's happening when people are moving in. And one of the things I decided when I started my public garden career was that I would always have internships. Now I can look around at people from Miami to New York to Chicago, and I can see people who came to South Carolina, that little state that didn't have much going on horticultural-wise, did an internship, and they have gone on and built careers in all those places. And so I'm really proud that young people come here today and get great gardening experience, and then they take the word out that South Carolina has great gardens. Jinx, tell us how people may connect with you. Our webpage is the best, jinxfarmer.com. On there, we have an email list. So if people want to stay in touch, if they join our email list, that's the best way. Also, we're on Facebook, TikTok, and we are on Instagram. This has been episode 58, Oddball Planting Times with Jinx Farmer. Thank you, Jinx. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.